where we are this evening, the Gospel of Luke, chapter 16. And maybe we can get our screen up there. We're thinking about the upside-down gospel of Calvinism. And uh, we have begun already on the subject of uh, total uh, depravity, total depravity. And uh, we did the first half last uh, Wednesday evening. Uh, I say the first half, I intended to do the whole thing last Wednesday evening, but we didn't get through it all. So we've got a part two uh, this evening. But we're thinking about the first T, the first, uh, the first subject on the tulip, the T for total depravity. You see the five points of Calvinism up there, total depravity, unconditional election, limited atonement, irresistible grace, and perseverance of the saints. And uh, we, uh, we thought about the notion of total depravity, and we saw that in the doctrine of Calvinism, uh, this is more often understood as total inability. And the idea is not just that man has a sinful nature and a propensity for sin, but it goes beyond that and says that because he's spiritually dead, man is incapable of response to the gospel. And therefore, he needs a special, miraculous work of God. That God has to rebirth his soul and uh, bring him to a spiritual life. And then he's ready to receive Christ uh, at least at least consciously receive Christ uh, and begin the Christian life. So uh, really it's an unconscious thing that happens according to uh, this doctrine whereby you're so lost, you're so dead that you cannot uh, be appealed to, you cannot uh, respond to anything, you cannot uh, understand spiritual truths that, that it's beyond you uh, to make a positive response of belief. And uh, we considered two portions of Scripture together uh, last week along this line. So remember, we said this, that in Calvinist theology, uh, Calvinism teaches that uh, the dead know not anything. Now, that, remember, that's the same thing that Jehovah's Witnesses teach, but albeit on a different vein. But the same application is made. They make it concerning eternal death. And they say that when you die, you don't know anything, that you have no consciousness of eternity, that the soul is the body and the body is the soul. And when the body dies, the soul dies and neither one is responsive to anything. Uh, the Calvinist doesn't say that, but he does say that uh, death, a physical death is likened to spiritual death. And just as you cannot awaken a person who is physically dead, there's nothing you can do to tease them back to life. You can't persuade them back from the dead. You can't tempt them with anything. You can't tickle their feet and, you know, they're going to jump up. Nothing's going to happen no matter what you do to them. And so they say the same thing is true about spiritual death, that a spiritually dead person cannot possibly respond. And so one of the texts that is often referred to to verify this is Luke, or sorry, John chapter 11 and the story of Lazarus's resurrection. And uh, apparently this story illustrates the accuracy of this doctrine that uh, Lazarus was unable to respond to any, any outside stimuli and that Jesus had to come to the tomb and call him out of the tomb. And uh, then Lazarus obviously awoke, came back up to life and came out and was uh, unwrapped of all of his grave clothes. Um, but the problem we have here is that physical death cannot be equated with spiritual death. A spiritual death is not unconsciousness. 
It's not an ability. It is a separation. And we showed you that in three scriptures last week, that death always in scripture refers to a separation. And then we made the point that Lazarus was not spiritually dead, but in fact, he was spiritually alive. He was a believer, not an unbeliever. So he'd be a very bad example for us to draw from if we were trying to prove this doctrine. Uh, because he's referred to in John 11 as a believer, and four times he, it is stated that he was a friend of Jesus or of Jesus' disciples. And so that really puts us in a bit of a sticky wicket if we're going to use Lazarus as an example of spiritual death, because Lazarus was spiritually alive. And so the story was told, this particular story of John 11 is given, uh, and the events of that chapter are given not to illustrate salvation, but to reinforce resurrection truth. Remember, the Lord Jesus was facing a, a group of disciples who were living in fear of dying. He was facing Mary and Martha who were doubting in the face of death. And of course, the Lord himself was only a, a few short days away from death uh, because these events happened uh, just prior to his triumphal entry. And uh, within a matter of a few days, he himself would uh, be put to death and would be resurrected. So he's making the point that he, has, he is the one who has resurrection and life within his power. And so Lazarus was not spiritually dead. He was spiritually alive, and he was in paradise at the time of this miracle. So his resurrection was not for his benefit. Uh, to bring him back from the dead wasn't doing him a favor in that context. Uh, it was actually to... to uh, pull him out of a very happy and blissful situation and put him back into a world of woe. And so it certainly wasn't for Lazarus's benefit that he was raised uh, from the dead. And we know that it was for the benefit of those who were gathered around the site of his tomb and uh, that, the, that the Lord was making the point to them that he had the power to raise the dead. So this whole passage isn't about salvation. It's about resurrection. And uh, then we move to a second uh, a second uh, chapter, Luke chapter 15, and we thought about the parable of the prodigal son. And we realized that this was a far better passage of Scripture if you want to illustrate salvation, because the whole premise of that parable, and indeed the other two parables, the lost coin uh, and the, uh, the, the lost sheep, uh, the whole premise of that is that Jesus was criticized for receiving sinners and eating with them. And so to illustrate how God loves sinners and how he reaches out to sinners, Jesus tells these three parables. And each one of the parables relates to a different person of the Godhead. And so we read in that passage that of this prodigal, this son who was lost twice in the passage, it says he was dead. He was not physically dead, of course, within the story, but he was spiritually dead. He was separated from the Father, and the Father in the story is representative of God, the Father. So he's picturing spiritual death. And the question then arises, well, if the prodigal was spiritually dead, or he represents spiritual death, was he incapable of volition, of response, of will? And we saw that he was able to exercise volition. We saw that he was able to reason through his predicament before he made the decision to return home to his father. And having turned back home, he cried out for forgiveness 
And he got the acceptance of his father wholeheartedly. He got a very enthusiastic uh, and, and uh, very gracious reception and was completely forgiven. Now, I want to go to Luke chapter 19, or 16 tonight, uh, beginning in verse 19. And we'll read down to verse 31. And this is another chapter that plays into this particular uh, area of doctrine. And it's to do with the rich man and Lazarus. Again, it's a passage of Scripture that's very familiar to us. Verse 19 says, There was a certain rich man who was clothed in purple and fine linen and fared sumptuously every day. And there was a certain beggar named Lazarus, which was laid at his gate full of sores, not to be confused with the Lazarus of John 11. And desiring to be fed with the crumbs which fell from the rich man's table, moreover the dogs came and licked his sores, the beggar's sores. And it came to pass that the beggar died and was carried by the angels into Abraham's bosom. And the rich man also died and was buried. And in hell he lift up his eyes, being in torments, and seeth Abraham afar off and Lazarus in his bosom. And he cried and said, Father Abraham, have mercy on me and send Lazarus that he may dip the tip of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am tormented in this flame. But Abraham said, Son, remember that thou in thy lifetime receivest thy good things and likewise Lazarus evil things. But now he is comforted and thou art tormented. And beside all this, between us and you, there is a great gulf fixed, so that they which would pass from hence to you cannot, neither can they pass to us that would come from thence. Then he said, I pray thee therefore, Father, that thou wouldest send him to my father's house. For I have five brethren, that he may testify unto them, lest they also come into this place of torment. And Abram said unto him, They have Moses and the prophets, let them hear them. And he said, Nay, Father Abraham, but if one went unto them from the dead, they will repent. And he said unto them, If they hear not Moses and the prophets, neither will they be persuaded, though one rose from the dead. Now, the question for tonight is this. Is the rich man in this story spiritually dead? That's the question I want to ask first of all. Is he spiritually dead? Does anybody want to proffer an answer? Yes, he is. He's absolutely spiritually dead, okay? Um, now, Davy, was Davy answered that, wasn't it? I wasn't sure it was Davy or, or Harold. Couldn't see your lips move. Thought one of you was a ventriloquist. But anyway, uh, I think it was Davy said that was Davy. Uh, so so Davy got, got it right. He is spiritually dead. Um, but, but almost invariably when I've asked Calvinist friends this question, and I say to them, well, what about the rich man in Luke 16? Was he spiritually dead? They will answer no. So that raises the question, if he is not spiritually dead, why is he in hell? If he's not spiritually dead, why is he in hell? Because if he was spiritually alive, shouldn't he be in paradise with Lazarus in this account? He should have went into Abraham's bosom. Both men died around the same period in time. Lazarus went to paradise. The rich man went to hell. If he was spiritually alive, shouldn't he have gone to paradise with the beggar? Not only is he spiritually dead, but he's eternally dead. He was separated from God in life, and now he is separated from God forever in death. But notice, even though he was both spiritually 
and eternally dead, he could hear, he could see, he could speak, he could taste, and he could respond. Now, to use the Calvinist analogy, a dead body cannot do any of those things. Dead body cannot see, cannot hear, cannot taste, cannot respond to any stimuli whatsoever. But this man is spiritually dead, and he is able to respond with all of those senses uh, and all of those uh, feelings. Uh, so he's in, in that respect, we've got to come to this conclusion that a, a spiritual death does not equate with physical death, and physical death does not equate with spiritual death. This man in hell could exercise logic and reason, and although we have to admit his logic was flawed, or at least his thinking was flawed, he was nonetheless responsive. He required and asked for a drop of water uh, to cool the torment of his tongue. He appealed for his brother, his brothers, lest they should also follow him into the pit. Uh, he rejected the scriptures, sadly, uh, but although at this stage it would have made no difference anyway, but he was confirmed in his unbelief and uh, said that if one went from the dead, it would persuade his brothers to believe. And uh, Abraham was very quick to point out that if they wouldn't believe the Bible, they weren't going to believe even if one rose from the dead. And so he's confirmed in his unbelief. But the point I'm making here is this. Spiritual death is not unconsciousness. It's not unresponsiveness. It's not something that has lacks reaction. Spiritual death can respond, can react, does have sense, and is able to work through problems. So to summarize all of this, uh, I've put a little table together. We all like a good table, don't we? So we had Lazarus, John chapter 11, physically dead but spiritually alive. Such being the case, he cannot support the doctrine of total inability. Why? Because he's not spiritually dead. You're using the wrong uh, point of reference. Then we have the prodigal in Luke 15. He is physically alive, but spiritually dead. He doesn't support the doctrine of total inability. Why? Because he said, I will arise and go to my father. And I will say unto my father. So he exercised volition. And he goes to his father and he makes an appeal to his father. And he asks his father to receive him not as a son but as a hired servant. He comes in humility to the father. And the father forgives him and accepts him on the grounds of sonship rather than servanthood. So he doesn't support, or this story doesn't support, the doctrine of total inability. And the story we've just looked at is of the rich man in Luke 16, and he is physically dead and spiritually dead, but he does not support the doctrine of total inability either. So you're really in trouble, I think, if you're going to make this appeal uh, to these scriptures in particular to, to uphold uh, this doctrine, particularly John chapter 11. It just doesn't bear out. So whatever way you look at it, the idea of total inability is lost. Now, don't confuse that with total depravity. Total depravity is about human nature. It's about your, uh, your, your bent towards sin, about your propensity uh, for sin. Uh, that's an entirely different thing. But it's simply wrong to equate spiritual death with physical death and physical death with spiritual death. Spiritually dead men can 
and do think through spiritual matters, sometimes, as in the case of the prodigal, with the right answer forthcoming, and sometimes, as in the case of the rich man, with the wrong answer forthcoming. But nevertheless, they were able to respond for good or for ill. And this is entirely in keeping with evangelistic methodology in the Scripture. Look with me in Acts chapter 17. Acts chapter 17. And I want you to read with me verses 2 and 3. And then we're going to go to the next chapter, 18 and verse 4. But notice, Paul is at uh, the church at Thessalonica. And it says, and Paul... He's in, the, sorry, he's, in the, he's in the city of Thessalonica. He's evangelizing. He's in the synagogue in that city, speaking to the Jews and to the uh, devout men gathered there. It says in verse 2, And as Paul, as his manner was, went in unto them, and three Sabbath days, now underline this word in your Bible, he reasoned with them out of the Scriptures. Now Calvinism says that they cannot be reasoned with. That there's no point that they have no ability to discern the scriptures. And yet here we see that Paul reasoned not just for one day, but for three Sabbath days. That's between two and three weeks, depending on when he started. Opening and alleging that Christ must needs have suffered and risen again from the dead, and that this Jesus whom I preach unto you is Christ. If you go to chapter 18 and verse 4, it says, and now he's, he's dealing with the people at Corinth. And again, he's in the synagogue. He's dealing with unbelievers. He's evangelizing. He's dealing with dead men, men who are dead and trespassed and sins. And it says, and he reasoned in the synagogue every Sabbath and persuaded the Jews and the Greeks. Look at the language. He reasoned. He persuaded. Now, let me ask you a simple question. If someone of us died right now, if somebody was to fall off the end of their pew, That would be very unfortunate. It would ruin the service, so please don't do it. But if it happened and you fell off the end of the pew, I was going to pick a new and Andrew, but I don't want to do it. Oh, well, okay, you're young enough that hopefully it won't happen. So so let's assume Andrew has a heart attack. He falls off the end of the pew and he's lying in the aisle. And I come down and I say, Andrew, pull yourself together, man. You know, this is not, you've got work in the morning. You've got a family to keep. You've got children to look after. You've got responsibility. You can't just lie there. And I start appealing to him. You know, I, you know, I say, you've got your whole life in front of you. You don't want to give up at this stage. You know, you've got so much in front of you. you, you so much to live for. And I try to persuade him. Would you not think that I would be a lunatic? You'd say, you'd be a nutcase. What? You're trying to persuade her. You know, maybe I call Katie up and says, what's Andrew's favorite food? Oh, he likes chicken curry. We'll go up to the Chinese and we'll bring a chicken curry and we'll wave it in front of his nose and see if that gets him moving. It It would be utter madness. So you can't reason and persuade with a physically dead person, but evidently you can with a spiritually dead person because that's precisely what Paul was doing. In Acts chapter 17, or Acts 17 and Acts chapter 18. Not only that, let's go to an Old Testament example in 1 Samuel chapter 12. 1 Samuel chapter 12. 
1 Samuel chapter 12 and verse 7. And here is Samuel appealing to the Israelites. And he says in verse 7 of 1 Samuel chapter 12, Now therefore stand still, that I may, notice what he says, reason with you before the Lord of all the righteous acts of the Lord, which he did to you and to your fathers. Now, who was Samuel addressing? He wasn't addressing believers He was addressing unbelievers in Israel. He was addressing those who had rejected the Lord and who had chosen a king over the Lord. Look in 1 Samuel chapter 8 and verse 7. The Lord said unto Samuel, and this is in the same vein, the same context. The Lord said unto Samuel, hearken unto the voice of the people in all that they say unto thee, for they have not rejected thee, but they have rejected me that I should not reign over them. So it's quite clear these people are rejecting the word of God. Chapter 10 and verse 19 says much the same thing of them. It says, And ye have this day rejected your God, who himself saved you out of all your adversities and your tribulations, referencing the Exodus. And you said unto him, Nay, but set a king over us now. Therefore present yourselves before the Lord by your tribes and by your thousands. And by the time you get to chapter 12 and verse 7, Samuel is reasoning with them about the decision that they've taken. Now again, why would Samuel reason with people who have no ability to respond to his message. Think about the great evangelistic text of Isaiah's prophecy, Isaiah chapter 1 and verse 18. And we, we've heard it preached on, I'm sure, in many gospel meetings. We've heard it rehearsed and quoted in gospel meetings. Come now, let us what? What's the next word say? Reason together, saith the Lord. Again, if I go back to Andrew, who's still lying on the carpet, unmovable, and I finally, in exasperation, I say to him, Come now, Andrew, let us reason together. Is this what you want to do? (laughs) It would be complete folly. Absolute folly. He will not react. He will not respond. Yet here is Isaiah talking to people who are evidently rebellious, who are idolatrous even, uh, who are about to receive the judgment of God upon them and be carried off into Babylon. He says to them, come now, the Lord's speaking, come now, let us reason together, saith the Lord. Though your sins be as scarlet, they shall be white as snow. Though they be red like crimson, they shall be wool. And then notice the next verse. If you you be willing and obedient. See, our our Calvinist friends say, well, they don't have a will. They've lost their will. They don't have a volition of their own in spiritual matters. And yet God says to them, if you be willing, if you be willing. So, You can't do this with a dead corpse, but you can do it with a dead spirit. And spiritual death does not render a soul unconscious and unable, but separates the person from God, and that's what makes it dead. 
Now again, you're in, I think you're in dangerous territory here because if you say a spiritually dead person is unresponsive, you're just a hair's breadth away from pressing into the watchtower doctrine and saying, well, once they go to hell, they're still unresponsive. No feeling, they're, they're gone. Now, what happens now? Having established that this doctrine is not supported by Scripture, the Calvinist does an interesting thing. He has a deflection. He does what many people do, and we've all been there. We've maybe done it ourselves. Uh, you know, uh, if you're defeated in an argument, well, it's rare that you admit your error, and then the, what happens is you decide to deflect from the subject matter. And the Calvinist does that because if you've got him on the subject of death and he has to accept that death doesn't mean what he says it means and it can't be defined in the way that he defines it, he moves from death to birth. Having been backed into a corner, he does what many people do. He moves the goalposts or he points to something else. And, uh, you know, we probably have all done that in arguments, you know, uh, where we've tried to deflect to somebody else or something else to get the heat off ourselves. Certainly cultists do this regularly. If you, uh, if you get a Jehovah's Witness and you've got him on a point, he'll say something like this. Well, let's talk about that later, uh, but let's talk about this now. And he's, and he's trying to get you off the point that you've got him stuck on. By the way, never let him off. Never, ever let him off. Not, say, no, I want to talk about that. And keep him at that point. But here's the thing, we've all done that. It's a, kind of, it's a very human thing to do. So what happens is our Calvinist friends come along and they refer to John 3, 3. Except the man be born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. And typically he will say, as R.C. Sproul says, who's up on the screen tonight, he will say something along this line. We cannot have a birth of ourselves. A babe cannot be born of itself. The difficulty he has with this is that a babe is not born of itself. It is born in response to the word of God. You're born again in response to the word of God. That's why Paul was reasoning and persuading with the Corinthians and the Thessalonians from the scriptures. He wasn't using political arguments. He wasn't using moral arguments. He wasn't using philosophical arguments. He wasn't using, as Augustine did, rhetoric. He was using the scriptures. I'm a big believer in the power of the scriptures. Now, I want you to think about this. Look at 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23. Because consistently the Bible tells us that a person is born again, is saved in response to the scriptures. Not that they're miraculously gifted by, by, uh, by faith and by repentance. Not that they're born again subconsciously or unconsciously before they can do that. But rather that they respond to the word of God. And 1 Peter chapter 1 and verse 23 says this. That we're being born again not of corruptible seed but of incorruptible by the word of God which liveth and abideth forever. So a man is born again in response to the word of God. He's born again as he heeds the scriptures. And this birth, unlike a physical birth, uh, is different because a physical birth requires nine months gestation period before a baby is born. The spiritual birth requires no such thing. And we looked at Romans chapter 10 and verse 17 last week. Faith cometh how? By hearing. 
And hearing what? Hearing by the word of God. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. Faith does not come by gifting. Remember last week we quoted one of the writers who said, you had to get faith. And I made the point, you don't get faith. You exercise faith. So a man is born again as he exercises faith in positive response to the word of God. Now, here's the interesting thing. Sproul says that, by the way, if you notice, he's the founder of Ligonier, Ligonier Ministries. Uh, you know, some folks may be critical and they say to me, well, you shouldn't be speaking on this subject. Uh, Ligonier Ministries are coming to Belfast in uh, the autumn. Guess what they're going to be speaking on? This subject. It's funny how it's okay for one group of people to speak on this subject, but it's not so good for another group of people to speak on this subject. No, we'll speak on the whole counsel of God. But anyway, Sproul is, is the founder of Ligonier Ministries, and not all Calvinists even agree on this point. Here's another Calvinist, very interesting fellow, Arthur W. Pink. You should look him up sometime and read about him and his life. Uh, but anyway, he said this, when treating of regeneration under the figure of the new birth, uh, some writers have introduced analogies of natural birth, which Scripture by no means warrants, in fact, disallows. Now, he's, a, he's a, a very strong Calvinist, Pink. Physical birth is bringing forth into this world a creature, a complete personality, which before conception had no existence whatsoever. But the one who is regenerated had a complete personality before he was born again. You know, one of the interesting things about A.W. Pink is that before he was converted, he was a Gnostic. He was a Christian Gnostic. Uh, does that sound familiar? That's exactly where Augustine was when he was converted. But anyway, I digress. Um, but, but he's an interesting fellow to read about. Started out as a premillennialist, ended up as an amillennialist, started out saying whosoever will, and ended up a uh, five-point Calvinist. And, and absolutely one of the, the, the... In fact, till Pink started writing, very few people were Calvinists at all. But anyway, uh, I'll leave that there. So still, not to be outdone, or to be undone, the Calvinist now turns to 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 14. If you want to look there, 1 Corinthians chapter 2. Now, the point we're talking about here is total inability. And he will quote this verse in chapter 2 and verse 14. And he says, But the natural man receiveth not the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness unto him. Neither can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. Now, he will say he can't know them because he's spiritually dead. Uh, one Calvinist commentary remarks at this verse, The Bible stresses the total inability of fallen man to respond to the things of God. He is not able to do so. This is what the Calvinist refers to as total depravity. But here's what I want to ask. I want to ask you a question. And, and you may be not know the answer to this question, but I encourage you to go home and, and find it out for yourself. By all means, ch test me on it. Um, is this passage speaking about receiving Christ? Is that what it's talking about? Is it addressing, as that commentator says, the inability of fallen man? No, it's speaking about the things of God in relation to believers. In fact, numerous times between verses 9 and 14, you'll see references in those verses, to the things of God. And you cannot take truths that are intended for believers and make them apply to unbelievers. This passage is teaching us that those who have already received the Spirit, which is of God, 
can know spiritual things. In other words, God gives his spirit to his sons that they might have spiritual understanding and spiritual blessings. He does not give these blessings to those who are dead in trespasses and sins and who are aliens from the commonwealth of Israel and strangers from the covenants of promise. They don't belong to them. And that's what is meant by they cannot know the things of God. Experientially, they cannot know the things of God. It's not part of who they are and what they are. God is reserving the things of God for those who believe. Now, one last little string of scriptures and we're done on this topic. I want to think about a determination. I want to think about some of the passages that describe human responsibility and accountability and salvation. Beginning with this verse, Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. Let's look at Deuteronomy chapter 30 and verse 19. Deuteronomy chapter 30, verse 19. Notice the words of the law as the, as the law is closing out. The final warning from God's word to the people of Israel. The Lord says, I call heaven and earth to record this day against you that I have set before you life and death, blessing and cursing. Now watch this. Therefore, what's that next word say? Choose. Therefore, choose life that both thy and thy seed may live. Now, if you're, if you're not able to choose life, if that's not within your ability, it's not within your gift, then this is a nonsense verse. This would be like me now returning to my brother here, who's still dead, lying in the aisle, and saying to him, they didn't have chicken curry. Would you prefer a chai mein or a satay? He's not going to respond. He can't make that choice. But here Moses says to them, choose life. Therefore, choose life. Make a sound decision. Joshua said the same thing, Joshua 24, 15. He said, choose ye this day whom ye will serve. You want to serve the God of heaven? You want to serve the gods of Egypt and Canaan? Who are you going to serve? Choose ye this day. Uh, let's go to the book of Ruth for a moment. Ruth, of course, is the book that details the romance of, of redemption. The whole book is, is a play on redemption and the story of redemption. And I want you to go to Ruth in chapter 1 and verse 16. Chapter 1 and verse 16. And here's this critical moment when Ruth has to choose whether she's going to follow the God of her mother-in-law, Naomi, or she's going to go back uh, with her sister-in-law uh, into the land of the Moabites. And it says, And Ruth said, Entreat me not to leave thee or to return from following after thee. For whether thou goest, notice what she says, I will go, there's volition, and where thou lodgest, I will lodge, thy people shall be my people, and thy God my God. That was her decision. 
She took that decision. Her mother-in-law actually tried to discourage her from taking that decision. She says, you know, I don't have any more sons in my womb. Why would you come with me? And she says, don't, don't try and put me off. I'm choosing the Lord. I'm going with the Lord. That's a decision she took uh, of her own free will. Look at 1 Kings chapter 18. 1 Kings chapter 18. Where are we in 1 Kings chapter 18? We're on the pinnacle of Mount Carmel with Elijah the prophet. And beneath him is an apostate nation that has followed King Ahab in rebellion against God. And he says to them, having destroyed the prophets of Baal, on this occasion, having called fire down from heaven and destroyed their, uh, their, the offering in their sight, uh, it says, Elijah came on verse 21 unto all the people and said, How long halt ye between two opinions? That's an appeal to reason. How long halt ye between two opinions? If the Lord be God, follow him. But if Baal, then follow him. And the people answered him, not a word. Again, we see volition and choice at the heart of salvation in the Old Testament. Look in Proverbs chapter 1. Proverbs chapter 1. Now, this is a very dramatic passage. Proverbs chapter 1. And uh, we want to begin reading in verse 24. Notice what the Lord says to them. Because I have called... And ye what? Refused. You refuse. If, if you refuse something, is that not a decision? If I say to you, would you like a piece of cake with a cup of tea? And you refuse. Is that not a decision? Of course it's a decision. So they made a negative decision. Because I've called and ye refused, I have stretched out my hand and no man regarded. You have set it not all my counsel. He's talking about lost people. And with none of my reproof, I also will laugh at your calamity. I will mock when your fear cometh. When your fear cometh as desolation and your destruction cometh as a whirlwind. When distress and anguish cometh upon you, then shall they call upon me, but I will not answer. They shall seek me early, but they shall not find me. For, they, for that they hated knowledge and did what? Did not choose the fear of the Lord. They would none of my counsel or have none of my counsel. They despised all my reproof. Therefore, they shall eat of the fruit of their own way and be filled with their own devices. For the turning away of the simple shall slay them and the prosperity of fools shall destroy them. But whoso hearkeneth unto me shall dwell safely and shall be quiet from fear of evil. So God is making it clear that the responsibility for judgment here falls not upon his decree in eternity past. He didn't, he didn't designate them reprobate so they couldn't respond. He says the problem lay with you. You rejected. You refused. You disregarded. You wouldn't listen. And now your calamity is coming. You say, well, that's all Old Testament. Well, let's look at New Testament. Matthew 22. Matthew chapter 22, verse 1. Matthew chapter 22 and verse 1. says, And Jesus answered and spake unto them by parables and said, The kingdom of heaven is like unto a certain king which made a marriage for his son. 
and he sent forth his servants to call them that were bidden to the wedding, and they what? What does it say? Would not come. Doesn't say they could not come. Does it say could not come there? Doesn't say could not come. It says they would not come. That was their decision. They would not come. Chapter 23, very next chapter, verse 37. Chapter 23, verse 37. O Jerusalem, Jerusalem, thou that killest the prophets and stonest them which are sent unto thee, how often would I have gathered thy children together, even as a hen gathereth her chickens under her wings, and what? Ye would not. You wouldn't have it. You could have had the kingdom, but you wouldn't have it. Look in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 9. Luke, chapter 9. Verse 23. Luke chapter 9, verse 23. And he said unto them, If any man, what's the next word? Will. <laughs> Hold on a minute. You can't have a will. If you're dead and trespassed sins, you can't have a will. That's the reasoning. No, Jesus said, not so. He said unto them, If any man will come after me, let him deny himself, and let him take up his cross daily and follow me. For whosoever will save his life shall lose it, but whosoever will lose his life for my sake, the same shall save it. That's volition. Look in John chapter 5, verse 40. John chapter 5 and verse 40. Verses 39 and 40 together, we'll put them together. The Lord says, search the scriptures. For in them you think you have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And notice verse 40. And ye will not come to me that you might have life. He says, you, you won't come. You're refusing me. You're rejecting me. Acts chapter 16, finally, and verse 30 is our little... Chain reference completes Acts chapter 16, verse 30. Again, you know it well, the conversion of the Philippian jailer. And uh, the jail had been rocked by an earthquake, and uh, Paul and Silas and the other prisoners remaining in their cells. The keeper comes and gets them, brings them out of the prison. Verse 30, and he brought them out and said, Sirs, what must I do to be saved? And they said, There is nothing you can do. Because you are dead in trespasses and sins and you can't possibly respond to the gospel unless God miraculously births you and enables you to believe. Is that what you read in that passage? I don't read any of that stuff there. All I read is, and they said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and thou shalt be saved and thy house. You see what's happening here? We've complicated a very simple gospel. The gospel is so simple a little child can understand it. Believe and thou shalt be saved. That's the message. Believe in the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. There's, no, you know, there's nothing else to it. Now, uh, in closing, I'll throw all those texts up if you've missed any of them, and uh, you can have a look at them. But in closing, I want to reference Genesis chapter 18 for a moment. Genesis chapter 18. You don't need to turn there. But in that account, we find the story of Abraham uh, and, uh, and uh, the angels that came, and the Lord that came upon the city of Sodom with the intent of destroying that city. 
And uh, Abraham, as you know, negotiates with the Lord concerning the destruction uh, of the city. And uh, the thing I want you to get is that whole conversation where the Lord says, you know, if there's 50 righteous men there, will you, will you spare it? If there's 40 righteous men there, will you spare it? And he goes all the way down to 10 righteous men. And, uh, and, and so what he's doing is he's arguing with God, but he's arguing upon the basis of God's righteousness. The whole argument is predicated upon the basis of God's righteousness and of God's goodness. And Abraham asks a pivotal question in the course of that conversation. Right at the outset, he says, Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Now, that's a rhetorical question. In other words, it doesn't merit an answer. The answer is obvious. Of course he's going to do right. God will always do right. Now, we serve a God who's not only sovereign, and I want you to get this, he's not only sovereign, but he is supremely righteous. You see, all I hear from my Calvinist friends is the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God, the sovereignty of God. God is sovereign. God will as if there was no other attributes that mattered. As though no other aspect of God's character or being counted. No, listen, you mustn't, you mustn't eradicate the supreme righteousness of God on the basis of his sovereignty. His sovereignty must not be allowed to eliminate his righteousness. God will always do what's right. When I was a young fellow in high school, in secondary school, probably about 15, 15 years of age or so. We had a teacher one day who came into class and he announced that he had a brand new cane. And he said, is there anybody we'd like to try out? Well, you got a bunch of teenage boys, wise guys. Everybody's a wise guy in that class. And so, you know, this one boy goes, I'll do it, I'll, I'll try it out. And so a teacher called him up to the front and nobody thought he would cane him. Even the boy who was like, I'll do it, didn't think he would cane him. But he caned him. He caned him once. He caned him twice. He caned him three times, four times, five times, six times, maybe seven, eight, or nine times. Till the boy was weeping and crying with pain. And it was a dreadful thing as a young person to sit and watch that take place. You know, it was, it was just a terrible injustice. The teacher was clearly in the wrong. The teacher was clearly in the wrong. His actions were unrighteous. No right-thinking person would see it any other way. You couldn't sit there and say, well, that boy deserved that. Yeah, maybe he was a smart aleck. But he didn't deserve that. And you know, the rest of us were being just as much a smart Alex as he was. The teacher was unjust in his actions toward him. But far more terrible than that would it be for a holy God to command someone to do the impossible and then torment them in hell forever for their failure. It's like punishing a man for his inability to touch the stars. It would be an act of the most sadistic cruelty. It turns God from a righteous and holy figure into a monster. Is that your God? It's not my God. It's not the God of the Bible. My Bible says, Gracious is the Lord and righteous, and God is merciful. Our God is merciful. Our God does right. 
He judges right. He judges unbelief. He judges disobedience. He judges men, listen, according to their works. Now, you're not saved by your works, but you're judged by your works. Look in Revelation chapter 20, and we'll close with this. Revelation chapter 20. Suppose you come to the very end of time. Revelation chapter 20. Notice what it says. In verse 12. And I saw the dead and small, the great, stand before God. And the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged out of those things which were written in the books. Notice according to their works. And the sea gave up the dead which were in it, and death and hell delivered up the dead which were in them, and they were judged every man according to their works. If you go across the page to chapter 21 and verse 8, you get an idea of the kind of works that are being judged. But the fearful and the unbelieving and the abominable and murderers and whoremongers and sorcerers and idolaters and all liars shall have their part in the lake which burns with fire and brimstone, which is the second death. Now notice, God judges men not according to some decree that he has made in eternity past. He judges men according to their works according to their own actions, according to their own unbelief and their own deeds that follow that unbelief. Yes, total depravity certainly means that men have a sin nature. And there's no question that we have this propensity for sin. But what it doesn't mean is that it's impossible for a sinner to believe the gospel. That's what I I believe, that a, a sinner can believe the gospel and should believe the gospel. And I believe it not because I was schooled in some rhetoric or some philosophical thought, but because that is simply what the Bible says. And that's the bottom line. Well, we'll leave it there for this week. You have a reprieve for four weeks of Calvinism. Uh, I'm off, Lord willing, on Monday to England to teach for a week, uh, two weeks at New Tribes. And uh, Nigel is going to be stepping in and he's going to do a four-week series beginning next Wednesday evening on encouragements in daily living from the book of, of Isaiah.